This is a presentation of Redemption Bible Church. For more information, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org. So has anyone seen the Disney movie Luca? <laughs> it's a kid's movie, and I feel like it didn't get the hype of other movies that we might have seen. Um, but it's pretty good. Um, I watched it recently with my kids and some friends. Um, and then my son loved it so much, so I watched it like 600 more times. So I've, I've got it memorized. Um, but maybe you've seen it as well. But, but let, me, let me tell you about it. It's about a boy named Luca, who's actually a sea monster that lives in the ocean with his family. It feels really weird to talk about sea monsters up here this morning. <laughs> but I'm going somewhere with this. Um, but yes, he, uh, he lives with his family in the ocean. And the unique thing about uh, these sea monsters is they're, they're really a friendly group of sea monsters. Um, and they're, when they're out of the water and dry, they actually resemble a human person. And when they're, uh, when they're in the water or wet or when it's raining, they revert back to their normal sea monster bodies. The thing is that going to the surface is highly discouraged by Luca's family because the humans in the nearby city are afraid of sea monsters and want to hunt them down. He ends up meeting another fellow sea monster. <laughs> he ends up meeting another fellow sea monster and, wants, and uh, becomes good friends with him. And uh, he'd, his name is Alberto. He'd already been living on the surface for some time. Uh, Luca and Alberto become friends. They venture into this city. They explore with uh, what the city has to offer. They try gelato, eat some pasta. They train for a race in the hopes that they can buy a Vespa to travel the world together. So they have a blast uh, blending into this new city. But long story short, no matter how long they're on the surface, they realize they're just not one of the humans and will not be accepted by them. Even when they're on the surface and resembled humans, they always heard chatter among the people, because of their fear of monsters and their wanting to hunt them down. So Luke and Alberto felt that they could never make this place their home. And there's much more to this story, obviously, but this idea of not feeling like this is your home, or feeling like strangers in a foreign land, is, is something that Christians deal with and are meant to deal with. So the more we grow in our understanding of who Christ is and who we are called to be, the more we realize how different we are from the world around us. And frankly, as we'll see, this was to be expected. So we're in 1 Peter chapter 2 today. And the Apostle Peter is writing to the followers scattered throughout Asia Minor, which is now present-day Turkey. Uh, the Christians here felt a great deal of hatred purely because of their faith. They were marginalized in a, in a largely pagan society, ostracized for their beliefs and values. It negatively impacted them socially, economically, and potentially even physically. I mean, pushed to the edge, you can imagine the struggles many believers then might have had. This would have easily led to them doubting their faith, caving to the culture, wanting to just blend in to escape feeling alienated, or to avoid hostility. And for being real with ourselves, I think we try to blend in, too. This experience is not just unique to that time. And so we're in the middle of a series called Going Deeper. And uh, we're trying here to 
uh, take our relationship with God to a deeper level so it can transform the way we connect with God. Uh, last week, Pastor Robin took us through what it meant to delight in God in a deeper way so we can enjoy his presence and connect with him uh, differently. And today we'll be taking a deep dive into what Christ has done for us and the identity he's given us by making us his own. And what we're going to see is that this identity is the very reason we may face ridicule and feel detached from the world. Sure, we may not feel like we're in physical danger for our faith, but it's not hard to see that we certainly live in a society that's increasingly incompatible with Christianity. The more we live out our faith, the more it feels like we don't belong here. And that's okay, but more than okay. The deeper we understand what God has done for us and, and what he and the identity that he's given us, the more we take joy in living different as exiles in a foreign land. The title of today's sermon is Deeper in Our Identity. Deeper in Our Identity. If you're a follower of Christ, my hope today is that we get a fresh take on our identity as the people of God and that it would help us navigate how to live in this world but as citizens of another. While this is easier said than done, Paul writes to the church a message of encouragement how followers of Christ ought to live in a world that stands in opposition to the word. So this brings us to our big idea for today. The church has been called out of the darkness to be set apart for the glory of God. And I'll say that again. The church has been called out of the darkness to be set apart for the glory of God. Of God. So this has everything to do with our identity that He has freely given to us by God. Our identity tells us who we are, what Christ has done, and now what we are called for. So to help us navigate this text further this morning, we're just going to ask ourselves three questions and answer them together. One, what is our identity? Two, what is the purpose of our identity? And three, what does our identity demand of us? So first question, what is our identity? Let's read the first part of verse 9 together. It says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. So what's our identity? So right before these verses, actually, Peter had just talked about how there will be people to choose to reject the word and reject God. And then he turns to those that have trusted God and elevate his word. And then he says to them, but you are not like them. And he's talking to the early church here. He says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. These were titles that were previously reserved for Israelites in the Old Testament. And we see how God here has expanded that to include anybody that will follow him. So he describes our identity with these titles, and we're going to break each one of these down briefly. So first we have chosen race. This is, this is related to the Old Testament promises, stating uh, that the chosen people of God, the Israelites, the descendants of Abraham, will be delivered from exile. But as we move to the New Testament here, we see how Jesus provides the greatest deliverance through the cross. And so now when we describe race here, it's not about ethnicity or nationality or anything related to physical appearance or location. 
Chosen people are not people that have been purchased, not by gold or silver, but by the blood of the living Christ. This is our commonality. Never in the world had there been anything so inclusive, so unifying, that despite the millions of differences that we all share, that we could be one people in Christ. This is huge. And for those of us that call him Lord, we didn't choose him, but rather he chose us first. While we were in sin, when we had nothing to offer, when we were in rebellion, as we turned our faces away, he took us in and chose us to be his. Now an invitation for all. Next we see royal priesthood. See, back in the Old Testament, only priests had special access to God. They mediated between people and God and offered sacrifices to him for their sins. They were the only ones that were allowed in the innermost parts of the temple where God would reside. But after the resurrection, where Jesus himself was sacrificed as a permanent and perfect ransom for all, we no longer need to make sacrifices. We don't need anyone to act on our behalf. We have direct access to God. And now we ourselves are now the temples as he resides in us. And this is a royal priesthood because he is our king and to whom our allegiance lies. And now we get to be his mediators to the rest of the world. Not only that, we're described as a holy nation. We're a nation that's set apart, different than any other. And when we say nation, we're not talking about a country with physical borders, but a people bound by the blood of Christ. And while we may live here in the U.S. physically, we're not talking about a country. We're a people that transcend geography. Our, our true citizenship belongs to God's holy kingdom as his people, unified stronger than any other under the king of all kings. But I want us to pause here real quick and ask ourselves, do we really believe this? Because I think sometimes we treat this as a nice thought or something that's good in theory, but not a reality of our present day. So think about your day to day. Do we actually operate as people from a heavenly kingdom? And so we too often build our lives as citizens of this world. And this world's customs and patterns, and we get comfortable and we make ourselves right at home. So we have to recall the identity that's been given to us. And to help us out, Peter yet uses another descriptor to remind us of that. We're a people for his own possession. This essentially combines the titles we just went over. It doubles down on being a chosen people. He emphasizes that we are the chosen people of God. And let's not get it twisted. We are not better or special than anybody else. We weren't chosen because we were good, but rather because of his goodness towards us. We're chosen, royal, and holy. This is bigger than our race, bigger than our nationality, our upbringing, our vocation, bigger than our relationships, bigger than our socioeconomic status. Instead of anything you can call yourself, God looks at you and says, Mine. That's who we are. 
So what's our identity? We are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. In short, we are his. But we weren't given these titles to simply kick back and just enjoy it. There's a purpose, and that brings us to our next question. What is the purpose of our identity? What is the purpose of our identity? After Peter reveals to us the identity that God has given the church, he goes on to explain why we were chosen. He goes on to say in verse 9, the second part of verse 9, read with me, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We use the word darkness in Scripture to describe our evil, describe evil or our fallenness, but I think we take it for granted in the gravity of what darkness really entails. So when we were younger, my cousins and I would play a game called Haunted House, which at the time sounded like a really cool name, but it's just hide and seek in the dark. And so we'd play in our basement with no lights on. I'm not even sure if there are windows in the basement that would allow even the smallest bit of light. But we try to navigate in the quiet, pitch black, and try to find anyone hiding. And looking back, this might have been a little dangerous, but totally worth it. And I'm pretty sure we play this as adults too. But some people that are in this room, I'm not going to mention names, but it's just as fun, highly recommended. But the thing is, it was so dark that we couldn't see ourselves, couldn't see our hands, where we were walking, what we were about to run into. And the reason I even bring this up is because I want us to understand the reality and the gravity of the darkness that Peter is talking about. Obviously, he's not talking about a, a children's game, but a spiritual darkness. One we were essentially blind wandering aimlessly in our wretchedness with no hope, even unaware of the death that awaited us. It was a deserved darkness because we are sinful people and we naturally choose to go against the ways of God. See, darkness means no light, right? But I think sometimes we act as if we could see a little bit and we searched and searched and found our salvation like we mustered up the courage and found the door to get out or wanted to be better and Christ came along. And if everyone can do that, we'd all be in a better place. But the truth is, we did not have the ability to do this. We were dead in the darkness, deserving of hell. We had no chance. We could not see. We were goners, stuck in our rebellion without a glimmer of hope. Until God looked at us, saw our mess, acting in our rebellion, and called us out. He called us out of the darkness and into his marvelous light. John 1.5 says, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. When we understand how deep our darkness was and how great his rescue is, we can't help but proclaim the excellencies of the God who called us to his marvelous light. That is literally our purpose here in everything that we do. That is the banner of our faith. Peter then adds in verse 10. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, 
but now you have received mercy. This verse is alluding to the book of Hosea. Hosea was a prophet from the Old Testament who was tasked with the job of marrying a prostitute named Gomer and having children with her. Really unfortunate. But this was to demonstrate the relationship between the Israelites and God. Those people are constantly unfaithful and choosing to rebel while God was always faithful and choosing to restore. They had, th- they had three children. The first one was a son. They had to name him Jezreel, which meant scattered. This is foreshadowing how uh, the Israelites would be conquered and then the people would be scattered all over the place. Then they had a daughter to be named No Mercy. And then lastly, a son named Not My People. So yeah, not the best names here. And if anyone's looking for baby names, let me help you out. Cross those right off your list. Unless you want your kids to spite you in the future, keep them. But what happens is that Gomer was not faithful to Hosea. Yet Hosea continued to pursue her so that she would come around. This was a picture of God and his people. And despite the unfaithfulness, God says in Hosea 2.23, And I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. So we see how God continued to have compassion on his people. While the book of Hosea may not have had a happy ending, this was a covenant promise of future restoration. And this is where Peter speaks from now when he quotes that you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You didn't have mercy, but now you have mercy. This is all under the overarching theme that we belong to God, a demonstration of God's compassion in our infidelity to him and our lust for the things of this world. And points once again to our purpose to proclaim the excellencies of the God who saved us from darkness. So we identify as God's chosen royal people, called for the purpose of proclaiming the goodness of God. And what does that mean for us today? Let's move on to our final point, or the third question. What does our identity demand of us? What does our identity demand of us? So here we're given two commands that go hand in hand in setting us apart from the world. First, we're to stay away from the passions of the flesh. And secondly, we keep our conduct in check. Let's read verse 11 together. Peter says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. He's saying, friends, while you live here, this is not actually your home. We're resident aliens because we don't belong to a place. We belong to a person. As Christians, we're we're foreigners in this place just passing through. And while we live here, we need to have the right perspective in the society that we live in. See, because we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, by default, we automatically take on the title of sojourners and exiles. In other words, this is the consequence of our faith. 
So Peter says to abstain from the passions of the world. Because while we're citizens of heaven, we're still prone to the empty pleasures of earth. So we have to ask ourselves, what exactly are these passions or desires of the flesh? The easiest way to answer this question is to contrast the desires that please the flesh against desires that glorify God. So passions of the flesh can be considered as ungodly desires. Anything that we put above God himself. Because as followers of Christ, we want to love what God loves and hate what God hates, right? So think about the things that drive you. Think about the things that stir up your emotions. Think about the most recurrent thoughts that you have. The things you feel like you can't live without. What are some of your greatest ambitions? And then think, Are they godly desires or are they distractions preventing you from proclaiming the excellencies of God? See, not every desire that we have is bad per se, but when elevated above God himself, when you're trying to find more fulfillment from it than him, they become idols. And then we're crossing into dangerous territory. Peter says the desires of the flesh wage war against our souls They're trying to kill you. Peter says, I urge you to abstain. Stay away. He's saying, don't fall for it. It's a trap. See, we're not of this world. So when you consume this world, you will be destroyed by this world. Sin doesn't care about you. It only cares to consume you. And if we're really honest with ourselves, any other longing or desires probably left us thirsty, never fulfilled. Keep wanting more. Because our souls are made to be satisfied in God alone. That's the blueprint of our being. That's how we were made. In his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis says this, If we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. And I think he hits the nail right on the head with that. And then as we move on to verse 12, and let's, let's go ahead and read that together as well. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So we remove ourselves from the desires of this world, and now we strive to have honorable conduct among the Gentiles. Gentiles here can be interchanged for unbelievers, those that don't yet have a relationship with God. So the first thing we make note of here is that those that don't know God will speak against the people that do know God as evildoers. This is not an if, but a when. It's kind of a harsh irony to describe those that live in a godly way as evildoers. But if you think about it, and if you pay attention to society, Christians aren't being painted in a good light these days. But it's the reality in the life of a sojourner and an exile, right? And the instruction is that despite this, the church is to live in a way where our conduct would still be honorable. Notice it doesn't say retaliate. 
See, when the world responds to hostility, it says fight fire with fire. It says me against you. But when God calls us to be honorable, he says he wants us to reflect his honor. See, God has made us his own, given us a new heart, and we love because he first loved us. So when they speak against us as evildoers, we will show them they're wrong. And we do this by demonstrating the gospel in our conduct. This is the very way we live as citizens of another kingdom. And we do this when we live from our identity as God's people, called to proclaim his goodness in giving us new life. And now we're coming back full circle here in verse 12, but to put it simply, honorable conduct flows from godly desires. Honorable conduct flows from godly desires. And godly desires ultimately will yield good deeds. And when all is said and done, the hope is that we would live in a way that those who criticize us for our faith can still see the fruit born out of it. See, when we, when we are real about our faith, then they may see that our faith is for real. And we hope that the people that look down on Christians will be the very same people that will be glorifying God with us when Christ returns. That's why Philippians 3.20 says, Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We hope that one day we'll see many that we weren't sure that would be with us. And so how do we answer this third question? What does our identity demand of us? That we abstain from the empty desires of this world and instead live in such an honorable way that we would draw others to God as well. We are to be set apart. So answering these three questions this morning is, is again what helps us drive our main point. Our big idea that the, the church has been called out of the darkness to be set apart from the world to proclaim the excellencies of God. Now, how can we make this truth a reality in our lives? Let's talk about two practical steps we can pursue here. Just two. Be so, one, be sober-minded about the desires that draw you. Be sober-minded about the desires that draw you. See, not all desires are terrible Peter says it's the fleshly desires that wage war on our souls. And these are strong words to call this a war. And I think we have a tendency to downplay it because one of Satan's best tricks is to make those desires so subtle that if we're not paying attention, it feels nothing like war. It just feels like life. So what's the big deal? The big deal is that these desires are trying to destroy you, trying to destroy your relationship with God and your relationship with others. War is never meant to be taken lightly. Let's talk about these passions of the flesh are that we are to stay away from. I think most of us will agree that things like a heavy use of drugs and alcohol, something like adultery or sex outside the confines of marriage, are things that we should stay away from. Those are kind of a given. But I believe there's many, many other factors and desires that, that surround our lives, invade our hearts, and shape our attitudes that we need to bring to the forefront. 
That's what this series is about. We're trying to dig deeper here. For instance, when we look at the first few verses of chapter 2, it gives us a glimpse into what Peter felt the church needed to be vigilant about. He said that we should put away malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. See, because of sin, this is the very thing we naturally default to. This is human nature, to put others down, to say one thing and then live in contradiction. But let's especially draw attention to the fact that we're not just talking about sinning externally. But sin manifests itself inside before it ever shows itself outside. So be honest with yourself today. Does any of this describe you? Do you have ill will towards anyone? Do you have a hypocritical spirit? The need to slander someone without a concern for your own character. We can't ignore it. We can't afford to. Another way we see fleshly passions or desires to take place is when we look at social media. Not trying to bash it, I'm on it too. I think there's healthy ways to use it. But I just mentioned social media because it's an obvious window into our society at large. It tells us what popular culture thinks and believes. And so don't just limit this to social media either. But my question is, do we really pay attention to what we're scrolling through? And if you're like me, you probably mindlessly scroll through your feeds without a second thought of what we're reading or watching or what you're listening to. I think we convince ourselves that as long as it's not porn or cussing, then we're in the clear. But I bring this up because if you're not careful, it will mold you. And what I mean by that is if you don't view everything from the lens of the gospel, you will be lied to. The people, pages, and posts you follow will subtly convince you that your external appearance is more significant than your holiness. That our goal should be to strive for the American dream. That it's about money, beauty, cars, and vacations. Or that it's a strong political, moral, or social stance that really defines you. There are literally influencers telling us how to think and feel and act. What I want to encourage you this morning is to check all of this against the Word of God. See what it actually says. See, when these things stir your affection more than Jesus, that's a problem. And so I want to echo what Peter said. Don't fall for it. And don't think that we can operate like the world and live for God at the same time. James 4, 4 says is clear when it says that friendship with the world is enmity with God. I'm not saying that everything is bad and we need to become monks or move into like a monastery or something. But we do need to be thinking, has this helped me to be set apart from the world or has it made me more like it? I heard this quote before, and I couldn't really find who, who said this, but it really stuck with me. He said, culture reinforces what our flesh wants. Culture reinforces what our flesh wants. So the things in our culture, we naturally want to emulate. 
and my fear is that we get more exposure to American culture than we do with the Word of God. And that's going to determine the type of people we become. One easy way to think about this is when there's children around, most of us will try to be careful about what's said around them, what they watch, what they hear, because they're so easily influenced. But for some reason, I think, as adults, we think we're invincible, capable of, incapable of corruption. I think we trust our hearts and our capabilities too much. We're not aware of what's affecting us, so we need to make the unconscious more conscious. In other words, let's not just be on autopilot. Rather, pay attention to what's around us, what's happening in us, the desires that draw our hearts, the idols that fight for our attention, because they wage war. And I get it. Self-control sounds boring. I know. It feels too religious almost, right? But honestly, it's not so much about what it feels like. We have to ask yourself, what is God really worthy of? When we rescued from the darkness and brought into his marvelous light? See, I have a two-year-old boy, and if anyone has a young boy, you know this is, this is what life is like. But I think half the time, at least half the time, we're just trying to keep him alive and out of danger. And the moment we look away, he's somehow back into the danger. He's somehow putting something in an outlet or jumping off of a couch or something. But unfortunately, as adults, I think we too flirt with the darkness that we were rescued from. See, our hearts, our hearts can betray us if we're not anchored in Christ. Which brings me to our second application point. We need to grow deeper into the identity we were called to. Grow deeper into the identity we're called to. See, apart from understanding and growing in our identity as the people of God, our efforts to be set apart will fall short. It has to flow from our understanding of who we once were as people trapped in the darkness. What God has done as he rescued us despite our spiritual adultery against him and who we are now, adopted sons and daughters, called into his marvelous light. God calls us his chosen, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. This is not just something that initiates our faith and then we move on from it. The gospel is at the very core of our faith. And the deeper we grow in it, the more joy we experience from the relationship God has called us to in Christ. The more we grow in our understanding of Christ, the more, we, more that we are defined by the identity that he's given us rather than having the world define it for us. Not only that, growing in our identity is the means by which we can truly live in a manner worthy of the gospel. Philippians 4.8 tells us to think on what is honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, and worthy of praise. Galatians 5.22 tells us that the fruits of the Spirit are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And I don't know about you, but this sounds way better than malice and slander and hypocrisy. Growing deeper in our identity 
is how good deeds and a servant attitude becomes our norm. That's how we serve a world that stands in contrast to us. That's how we stop being Sunday Christians and become full-time followers of Christ. This is how we go from simple church attenders and we become the church. As G.K. Chesterton put it, we don't want a church that moves with the world. We want a church that moves the world. And as much as we try to fit in, we're not meant to. If you don't feel out of place compared to the world, maybe something is off. Maybe you've gotten too comfortable here. Maybe you haven't grasped the wholeness of what Christ has done for you. Let's pray that we own the identity that God has given us and that we fall deeper in love with him who looked beyond our failures and calls us his children and longs for us to find our satisfaction fully in Jesus. And as we close, I just want to encourage you to be bold in your faith in this world. Have conduct that's representative of our God. Our witness represents who we worship. That we would look to perform good deeds and serve the people around us despite what comes at us. See, radical faith at some point may never look cool to a world that is moving further and further away from God. If anything, we might look like fools. But the goal is not that people love you, but they know who you love. So what people come to understand about God will be found in what they know about us. Some people may never take a deep dive into Christianity. Some people will never come into the, into the church. But they will know you. And they will see you. And they will know what you're about. So what does your conduct and lifestyle say about Christ? See, if we look like the world to them, then we're wasting our time playing religion. But if they see that we really mean what we preach, that we live from the identity of the rescued people of God and demonstrate his love to those around us, despite what they call us now, just maybe they may consider that they poorly misunderstood our God. Maybe we'll find them worshiping right alongside us. And friend, maybe that person is you. Maybe you don't know who this God is. And if you're here and you've been listening to what's been said, maybe, yeah, you, you feel that. It's true, nothing in this world really does satisfy, does it? I just want you to know that you were dead in your sin, deserving of eternal darkness, but instead of letting us go, God took the initiative, paid the highest price for you by having his son crucified on a cross to pay the penalty for your sin so that we can be reconciled back to him. And three days later, he rose from the grave, conquering sin and death, and he welcomes us now to be his. Out of the darkness and into his marvelous light, we're given a new identity, a new purpose, a new hope, and a new home.
And I just want to encourage you to think about what you've heard today and see how God is moving in you. And church, God sees us inside and out. He sees our idolatrous ways, the ways we lie, the ways we covet, the ways we disobey, the ways in which we choose the world and betray God. And God still looks at you and I, and he says, you're still mine, and I'm never done with you. He reminds us that this is not our home, the better days are ahead, that glory is coming. Until then, we are sojourners and exiles navigating through, the li- through this life with the joy of proclaiming the excellencies of the God who rescued you. We do that with the entirety of our being so that the world will know who we worship. Let's pray. Thanks for listening. For more audio content and information about redemption, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org.